Kentucky over there across the table. <laughs> yep. I, I'm good to go, dude. Let's do it. We're all ready. Five, four, three, two. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Cromcast. Season 10, episode one. The Pulps, Dune, and Frank Herbert. I'm Josh. I'm Luke. Die and Jonathan. And you are listening to a pulp podcast brought to you by three two-fisted dudes with attitude. Six fists. Six fists. Seven. Technically. Well, <laughs> I wasn't going to tell anybody <laughs> about your weird... I replaced my foot with a fist. ...quato arm that you have. <laughs> and welcome back to the Chromecast, everybody. How's it going? It's good, man. Living I am, the dream. I'm, I'm excited for this. It's our diamond anniversary. Yeah. Or something. Se- ten seasons? Aluminum anniversary. That's the tenth. Is it? I was... I, I was. This is my tenth anniversary this okay. past summer. Yeah. So... Do you go with the uh, the metallic... And traditional gifts. I do read up on the list, and okay. I, I've gone with the last three of them because they're kind of interesting to me. So I've done pottery, willow, and aluminum in a row now. Okay, we we just hit seven, which is copper. Okay, is that traditional or modern? Uh, I think it's I think it's modern. I think traditional is wool. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't think of a good wool gift. So I got Ashley wool socks. Nice, and a penny. I like it. Ooh. I got a big old vase for pottery. Last year for willow, I got it's like a big serving tray made out of a willow tree. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. This year a popcorn tin. <laughs> nice. And and eventually you're like six months later you're going to remember there's popcorn in there and go. I wonder. No, that that done went and got eight. Oh okay. yeah. <laughs> Usually what happens at our house is the uh, caramel gets eaten first, followed by the cheese, and then the regular like unsalted, unbuttered section yeah the the bigger section so this is, is a weird weird tangent but in omaha nebraska popcorn is a big business okay. like there are multiple i see dozens it in your eyes. of popcorn stores that you go to okay and like different competing brands and you can ask for whatever you want so this was like a three foot tall tin of just kettle corn uh does orville redenbacher run the city he doesn't oh. he's from indiana I, okay, I didn't know that. Well, he's dead now. But <laughs> Orville Redenbacher is dead? I'm fairly certain I of that. didn't know that. Yeah, pretty sure. I guess probably I should have assumed that, but I've never thought about it. Welcome to Popcorn Pod. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a popcorn store here in uh, the Bluegrass, right? Up in Midway. Yeah, there's a... Yeah, yeah, that, one, that one's really good, for sure. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. But there's yeah, a couple of, a couple of gourmand uh, popcorn vendors that are about that you can get your various like sweetened up corns. Yeah, I get mine at uh, local festivals and get the uh, the kettle corn. <laughs> yep. Immediately. Do we need the big bag? No. Do we want the big bag? Of course. Absolutely. There's a dollar more. That's how they get you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about what we're drinking. Clearly, it sounds like <laughs> maybe we've had a few already. 
What do you got? We've got some stuff here. I'm drinking uh, a Yangling Lager that Josh brought. It's traditional. That's what it says. Yeah. And you also brought what? Uh, residual Evan Williams from the last couple of weeks. Uh, this this bottle's been hanging on. And John, you have... What is it that you left over here last Doc- time? Dr. Elijah Craig. EC. Small batch. 1789. We've got that. Uh, we've got a couple half half uh, consumed bottles of the homebrew. So we've got a cherry mead and uh, a grape mead that we can... We can Drink also, too, if we want to keep non-carbonated, because we're a little bit burpy from all the carbonation that's flowing. Yep. So, are they half full or half empty? I, I think they're half empty. You guys have had too much already. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I don't think we have. With everything and, we listed out, it sounds like we're going to get sloppy. Uh, it's I guess it's possible, but we'll it's never happened on the show before. <laughs> do our best oh, to yeah. avoid that. We're going to um, keep it together, dude. We're going to keep it together. We're going to roll forward, and we're going to tell you about one thing. One thing, the segment of the show where we tell you about one thing that we've been jiving on lately. John? I'm going first? You go first. Okay. I'm going to go with some comics I've been reading. I read Jonah Hex, Volume 2, written by Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray, I think is his name, and art by lots and lots of different folks. It was from, I want to say, 06 to around 2011, whenever the New 52 kicked off. Ran for 70 issues. It's an interesting character. If you don't know about Jonah Hex, he's sort of a mysterious Western figure. He's a a bounty hunter. He was enslaved by Apaches as a boy. Uh, He served in the Confederate Army and kind of didn't like it. And he keeps his uniform on for the rest of his life as sort of a reminder. And he goes on various wild, weird Western adventures. And it's lots of weird, different kinds of stories. There's some horror ones. There's some traditional Westerns. It's just really good stuff. Lots of good art. I was showing Luke the other night. Some Darwin Cook issues, some Jordy Bernay issues. Lots of good stuff to see there. So check it out if you haven't seen it. I've, Jonah Hex always struck me as a very Howardian comic book I, character. I think he could hit that one really hard if he were able to have written comics yeah. at some point. I think one time we talked on the show about who we'd pick him to write, didn't we? We talked yeah. about like yeah. what comics we'd want him to write. Mm-hmm. I think Jonah Hex would be a good pick. Yeah, that would be solid. Yeah. And. I mean, uh, he's the guy that created the weird Western genre. So fair enough. And I don't know why I haven't really read much Jonah Hex, but he always reminded me of a Solomon Cain kind of figure. Yeah. Less religion. More cussing. More cussing. <laughs> but still vengeance. Yeah. A lot of vengeance. Yeah. He's definitely into getting back at those who get him or getting back for others. Like there's one I'm thinking of where he's hired by a nice old Native American lady to sit in on a negotiation where people are trying to buy her land and he's very confused why she wants this. And the guys, when they leave, they pretty much are like, well, we're going to come back and kill you and take this. And so he follows them out into the darkness and murders them for her. So yeah, yeah, he's all about that vengeance. Yeah. All about that vengeance life. (laughs) Since you went first, you get to pick who goes next. Uh, I'm going to go with you since I'm not sure Luke seems to be deciding or, Oh, you got it. I'm I'm good to go. Then I'm going to go with you. Uh, My one thing is the movie 12 monkeys. Liz and I were, I don't know, talking the other night about a handful of movies, and that was one that we decided we needed to rewatch. And it was available on, I don't know, either Prime or uh, Netflix, one of the two. And it's awesome. I don't know how 
how recently you guys have seen the movie 12 monkeys but it holds up and it's it's pretty great uh so it's a terry gilliam movie uh it's 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 a bonkers time travel movie with madeline stowe and bruce willis and uh brad pitt brad pitt who like steals the show it's funny because like i don't know brad pitt he just is able to play a crazy dude doesn't matter like it like the other the other movies that we were talking about watching are seven and fight club and we weren't talking about brad pitt it's just like that those three movies <laughs> came up but you know he plays a, a crazy person in in fight club and it struck me and it never hit me before uh this recent rewatch of 12 monkeys but you very much could have a sistered up comparison of 12 monkeys and fight club with like brad pitt and consumerism as your linchpin and it would work uh 12 monkeys is great and it's bonkers it's a cool science fictional noir uh ben's genres and i think i think it's good yeah i haven't seen that movie in a really long time have you seen it john 10 years ago i think maybe uh yeah it's it's another one with kind of a an oh crap moment at the end right <laughs> Yeah. 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 So it's cool stuff. Uh, you should have a Brad Pitt marathon some weekend. Dude. I'd love it, dude. I watched Legends of the Fall. We would like oh, yeah. get all crazy. We would, I don't know what else we would watch. Meet Joe like, Black. We would watch Meet Joe Black. We would watch uh, Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. What's uh, uh, what's Burn After it? Reading? Oh. Oh, yeah. I like that too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Susan Sarandon and, uh, uh, oh Thel- my God. Thelma and Louise. Yeah, Thelma and Louise. Yeah. He's in Thelma and Louise. Yep. Yes, he he's the one night stand for, for Gina. Oh, I thought he was Thelma. Nope. Nope. Do you, do you, have you have watched you? Thelma and Louise? Negative. Have you? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's we, some good stuff, man. Yeah. yeah we should watch it. it. I feel, I feel guilty that I couldn't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about the handkerchief and I was, I was actually thinking about, uh, Wayne's world, like Wayne and Garth, <laughs> they're like hands. they're holding hands. <laughs> like that's what I could think of when I was thinking of of uh, the the names of those two women in that movie, Thelma and Louise. So that was <laughs> all of this ties back around to Twelve Monkeys, which is a it's a cool science fiction noir. It's a head joint. Trip. Yeah, yeah. Is it an original? Uh, screenplay or is it based on something do you know uh it's based on another another film like a another time travel thing but i don't know anything about it i mean i know the the like the wikipedia entry and the the name of it like lajit or something but i've never watched it and i don't know what like what components are pulled beyond the the idea that there's a an ultimate sort of linchpin moment of the airport mm-hmm. so it's cool. Also, environmentalism, which we're going to talk about today, too. Yeah, we are. What about you, Josh? What's your one thing? Uh, my one thing is I went paperback shopping. I've been on this paperback kick for a while, and I picked up an Andrew J. Offit paperback from our Half Price Books in Lexington, and uh, it is called The Iron Lords, and I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet, but um, it was, I think, two bucks, and I was pretty psyched to fill out both my paperback collection and to buy an Andrew J. Offit story after, uh, after reading next Simmerket and doing all the, uh, the Offit research and then 
uh, reading Chris Offit's book about his father. The the cover art's badass, right? Yeah, the cover art is cool. Um, it it seems as though it is a you know chosen one barbarian sort of story. This kid sees his family murdered when he when he's young, and he grows up to perhaps be the chosen one of of this people. Okay. But I based that solely on the blurb on the back. Uh, <laughs> but it's one of those paperbacks, like, you know, there's no foreword. There's no author notes. There's nothing at the beginning. It just, it you've, you've got the publication, like, which edition is this? What year was it published? And then it jumps right into the story. Yeah. And there's no afterword or anything. It is just the story. I guess, you know, I haven't dived into the story itself yet because we've been preparing to talk about Dune and I've been trying to to mow my way through this, uh, this dense and awesome science fiction book. Uh, but yeah, this, this is on my list and it's, it's toward the top of my pile to read. That's fun, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to us talking about off it stuff on again, off again, yeah. off it, off, off it, off, off, get, Boo, get on it, bad that. jokes, get on it and get off it. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't stick that one. You, you no, nailed you it. it. You, na- you totally nailed it. Much, <laughs> much like we nailed our segment called, one thing. Smooth. <laughs> Just like my dismount. <laughs> Just like a yingling. <laughs> so let's let's set the stage for tonight. We've we've been discussing where to go next for quite some time. And we as, as we've mentioned on the show, have a, a Google Doc with a variety of different ideas for seasons. And generally we we take turnabout choosing like what are what do you guys want to do what's 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 the next thing let's hear some proposals and luke is up next and luke you've been psyched to talk about dune on the the show for quite some time yeah yeah so let's let's get into uh this by the route of why dune so i guess my reasons for talking about this story or this this novel and this topic are like, what's the word? Manifold, minifold. Uh, one, I, this is a, this has been a favorite book of mine, like since I read it in high school and it's just a book that I, that I, that I love. So I would, I would like to talk about it with you guys because you haven't read it up, up to this point. So it, it, I think it'll be a fun experience. I haven't, I haven't read it in some time. So, that's been one reason why I've advocated for it. Uh, the second reason is it's a big book in terms of its scope and content. And uh, just on that basis, like the, the ability for us to do a show uh, or a season that focuses on a science fiction book, I think would be cool. And I like the idea of the Chromecast talking about just pulps of all types. So, so that's of interest to me. And I guess the third thing kind of ties into that pulp narrative of our show, which is to say that this was originally a pulp story. And I think at least like with our discussion here tonight and at the outset, we'll be able to talk about some of the pulp history that ties into Dune. And I think over the course of our discussion of the novel, we'll be able to get into some of the serial aspects of the book too, which are cool because it's, uh, it's, it's cool that it is a story that is constructed of like multiple books and the cliffhanger ending, which is a, 
a defined trope within serialized pulps is something that was played on here. And I don't know. I, I think it'll be a fun story to talk about on the basis of it. One being science fiction two being a book that I really like. So selfishly, I want to talk about it in three, it being a pulp that we can like get into and talk about in relation to other pulps. And it's also a book from the sixties too. So it's a cool, like downstream product of the pulps that we've talked about up to this point. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty psyched to talk about it myself. I've never read it, and so this is my first time through. I'm halfway through uh, book two. So the structure of the, the novel is that it is broken into three books, and so book two, halfway through it, is about halfway through the paperback. And the, the paperback I'm working with is the Ace paperback. This is a newer edition. Um, let's see. Uh Yep. So the afterword is copyright 2005. And uh, this is the Ace Premium Edition from December 2010. So a newer paperback edition with uh, some wavy sand dunes on the front, oranges and reds with a couple of suns in the starry sky and footprints leading up to a cloaked figure standing on a dune. Yeah. So the version that I have is the one that I've had since high school, which is, I guess, the only version that I've really ever read. Uh, and it's the Ace Special 25th Anniversary Edition from September of 1990. It's black all around and has sort of tan and there's a bit of sand you recognize and two people sort of walking across the sand. So I have to ask, is the type in yours like incredibly small? It is, because- yeah. And that's the other thing Josh and I've talked about. Cause like my copy is like, I don't know, a half, third the, of- half the thickness. Half. A third. Yeah. We <laughs> should take a picture of them side by side. And so I think it's a product of the paper. Okay. And also just like the way the words are on the page is super duper dense. Okay. Uh, I am sure Josh's is oh, much more comfortable to read. very luxurious <laughs> compared to yours. Mine is, it, it's just a, yeah. So that's the, that's the edition that I have. When did you first read Dune, Luke? It sounds like you have a bit of a history with the book. I read it at some point in high school and this book originally belonged to the Tilly family and I think I never gave it back. <laughs> yeah. It's nice. one of it's one of those instances where I borrowed it from either Mike or his little sister and I don't think they wanted it back. I don't I can't remember, but I did not buy this book. It was like one of those things that was traded or given, you know. And so, I don't know. At some point between the ages of like 14 and 16. Is that the only time you've read it or have you read it multiple? Oh, no, I've read it. I've read like this 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 copy at least I read it once in college, like when I was an undergrad, uh, and I read it multiple times in high school because what I was reading in high school, I was fairly limited, like with the the stuff that I could mow through. Okay. And so I've probably read Dune, just guessing before this point, like three times. So probably like twice in high school and once in college. Because right. in college, I at least read through all of my, you know, favorite favorite FNSF books once. And why is it that you wanted to read it and keep the book when your friend offered it to you? Oh, it blew my mind. Like this is a this is a mind blower of a book. Like okay. there's a lot of there's a lot of big ideas here. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that you've read it a number of times. It's one of your favorite uh fantasy and science fiction books. And 
Uh, John and I have never read it before, so we're reading it, you know, as as dudes in our thirties, right, for the first time. Mm-hmm. So, I guess I would be interested in knowing as we move along if you have thoughts tonight that you know chime in. But uh, as we move along, how how are you approaching the book? How does it resonate with you uh, as somebody in their thirties versus somebody in their teens? So when I read it. At a younger age, like even in college, I didn't like at that point I was reading Lovecraft, but I wasn't reading like much of the other pulps. So I still didn't, I don't think, grasp that Dune was a serialized thing originally. And so I think that's one layer that I wasn't appreciating at that point. Uh, when I read it, at least in high school, it's it's far out. Like there's sex and drugs in it, right? Like there's. Uh, as we read it, there's going to be discussions of the spice, but also like the things that the Fremen peoples do that are orgiastic and, and feminist and all kinds of cool, like social stuff. And so as I read that, it kind of blew my mind on those fronts. Uh, and there was a lot of stuff just with Herbert's writing that early on, I didn't understand. So coming back to this book, now there's more material that I can more easily understand on the basis of just like the language and, and, and what he's saying there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I mean, as a scientist, I have a greater appreciation for that stuff too. I remember reading it in, in my undergraduate days when I was doing like wildlife and biology as a topic and thinking about like, Oh my God, this is like super heady mm-hmm. environmentalism stuff that was plugged into this story. And that kind of, clued me into the the relationship between science fiction and environmentalism so on multiple levels i guess the weird like sex drugs and sort of far out 60s 70s headspace is something that i can appreciate better now uh and sort of the context of how the story was written is something that i can appreciate now cool if you knew then what you know now yeah, and, and then I guess the final thing, too, is, like, since then, like, I saw the David Lynch Dune movie, and then the science fiction, or, like, the sci-fi channels Dune miniseries and Children of Dune came out at some point, maybe when we were in college, uh, and so I saw that, and so I have a lot of, like, the the adaptations as, as touchstones to kind of see what they were intending. Mm-hmm. How about you, Josh? Why have you never read Dune before? It's just one that I never got around to, I think. Um, I do remember watching parts of the Lynch Dune movie when I was uh, much younger, middle school maybe, or high school, and thinking that it looked uh, corny. Okay. And it just, I don't know, it it was not something that grasped my, that captured my imagination. Right. it's on a desert planet, and it, I kept thinking of Star Wars, which is funny because Dune came out in the 60s, you know, long before Star Wars, and and clearly was an inspiration for Star Wars in some ways. Okay. So, yeah, I, I just – it's it's a book that I never got around to reading, and having read through uh, the entirety of book one here – uh, in the first volume of Dune, I'm I'm kind of glad that I hadn't read it when I was younger because some of the ecological uh, underpinnings, some of the uh, environmental movement underpinnings, 
I might not have gotten when I was in high school. Maybe it would have resonated when I was in college. Yeah. Um, but when I was younger, I think that that stuff wouldn't have uh, struck a chord in the same way that it is now okay. with me. What about you? Why, why have you never read Dune? I don't know. I don't think it was ever really on my radar. I've never even considered reading it, I guess I would say. Maybe I had heard about the sex and drugs part and I was like, eh, I'm not into that. So. <laughs> so have you read any other science fiction? Uh, no, I don't have a lot of science fiction background. Like, like, what would you point out to me and say, like, have you read that? Oh, I mean, I don't know. Like, have, have you read, like, any science fiction novels? Yeah, I've read, yeah. like, uh, Sirens of Titan or Slaughterhouse-Five and that okay. kind of stuff. So yeah. Vonnegut? Yeah, I okay. like some Vonnegut. So this book, I made a note here, uh, Cat's Cradle, uh, Clifford Simak's Waystation, Andre Norton's Witch World, and the original serialized version of Dune were all up for Hugo nominations in 1964. Like, oh, that would have cool. been a hard-ass, like... Cat's Cradle versus Dune. Yeah. yeah. Like, wow. and, and, and Simak, ultimately, like, the way station ultimately won it. And I, I didn't write down, like, what the name of that serialized version was. But that's also, like, a, a hallmark of, like, science fiction. Okay. There was a butt-ton of, like crazy science fiction that was coming out like i knew you were <laughs> i knew you were, i know you're a vonnegut fan and so that's a good little segue like because you've read a bit of vonnegut right oh yeah yeah and so what are the things that you like about vonnegut um sarcasm uh but also the humanitarian streak that he has like he's a humanist and believes in the power of humanity even if he's kind of cynical about it mm-hmm. and, and he's funny and he's from Indiana. <laughs> so, just like Orville Redenbacher. Just like Orville Redenbacher. <laughs> Do you like his uh, believable sort of like social aspects to his stories? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, yeah. that's not a, not necessarily a leading question, but when I read Vonnegut, I like I'm not someone that's super into like alternate history materials but i like how vonnegut can make thing like there's a commentary right yeah like he's he's telling a sort of a socially important narrative i think he's a bit twainy right like he, he and mark twain have some similarities in that yeah. they use their books as avenues to say what they have yeah. to say yeah but no, I'm not very well versed in science okay. fiction, and I definitely I have a blind spot for Dune. And I'm, so, I don't know anything so about you, it. <laughs> you haven't read? I, I've never read any Asimov. Have you? No. Have you guys ever read any Asimov? Short stories, not okay. Yeah. Uh, have you read like any? Uh, I don't know, like Heinlein or in thinking about my science fiction consumption, it. Uh, as you were talking to John just now, it really mostly is all short story and, and very little longer form narratives. Um, you know, I read a lot of serialized kind of uh, pulpy sci-fi novels like uh, Tom Swift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I read a bunch of those when I was younger. Okay. So this is a good natural segue though. Let's talk about the pulps then because like science fiction as, as a genre was born in the pulps the same way uh, that a lot of the other genre fiction, and specifically like the sword and sorcery fantasy that we talk about on the show, mm-hmm. were born. Right? Like, right. there's, uh, like, I don't want to. 
make too stout of an argument because I haven't thought it through totally, but but fantasy and the gothic novel, which are which is a precursor to horror as a genre, like those writings are grounded in longer form narratives. It's not to say that short stories and the pulps weren't a natural like native place for them, but science fiction as a, a whole cloth creation really is a is a is a pulptastic route. So sure. I, I I think us talking about a science fiction novel is absolutely like apropos for yeah. for us to to get into here. Yeah, I, I I would totally agree with that. I I think a lot of folks might look at this episode in their feed and go, "Why are they talking about Dune? I thought this was the Robert E. Howard podcast." And while we largely have been covering Howard, we have also kind of uh, drifted away from Robert E. Howard's uh, core uh, narratives and and talked about his influences and branched out. And talked about the the pulps that have been influenced by him, uh, his contemporaries. And so I think um, in sort of thinking about Dune as a Howardian uh, story, uh, that might be a, a, a nice approach sort of to take as we move through. Not, not, you know, the entirety of our approach, but it might be fun to sort of reflect like what, what, how Ardian influences do you seek? Because it's pretty clear to me that Frank Herbert was a pulp fan and a pulp reader. They're swords. They're swords. And they're sand. S- they're sand. So I would so, argue they're sorcery. Yes, ab- absolutely. I mean, there's there's sorcery on on multiple levels. There's sorcery on the basis of. Uh, the spice at sel- like itself as a driver mm-hmm. of the of the narrative. There's sorcery on the basis of the religions of the novel, like the the presence of like the Bene Jesuit and the 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 Fremen cultures. Those are very mystical mm-hmm. and magical. And then like the final thing that I would say is that the antagonism that exists between human versus machine is very sorcerous too like the the world of dune is in a lot of ways anti-science and i think that's pretty prescient we can talk about that like on multiple episodes i'm sure but i think that is very sorcerous too so so magic while there's no real magic in the world things are magical Okay. Yeah. Okay. What, what's the quote? I'm, I'm not sure who to attribute it to, so maybe I should invoke it, but, uh, uh, I, I'm, I've heard a quote on multiple shows and in discussions with you guys that, um, technology and magic are similar enough if you don't understand the technology, right? Yep. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, and th- I think that's the, just at the at the base, there's arguments for like setting and characterizations to be sword and sorcery and Howardian. And it it occurs to me that a lot of the sword and sorcery materials that we've read for the show uh, are set in worlds that are uh, changing, worlds that are 
uh, maybe maybe not the world, but uh, the setting is uh, on the frontier, mm-hmm. right? And certainly those things are true of the setting of, of this novel. Yeah. So let's talk about the publication history of this and and riff on the pulps for a little while and and sort of get acquainted with where we are in terms of the grander history of science fiction and fantasy um, in in the pulps. So. If we're going to talk about the timeline here, like the, the the story of Dune kind of comes about in the late 50s and then, you know, through the late 60s, that's when Dune became popular and actually became a book. But to get into this topic, maybe we can rewind the clock a little bit and talk about like the golden age of science fiction and like John W. Uh, Campbell, that kind of thing. Let's dive deep yeah, yeah. all the way down okay. deep into the history of the pulps. <laughs> so there's a lot of pulps to talk about here. We're only going to get into a couple of them. Uh, my, my notes that I'm pulling from here. And if it sounds like I'm reading from, from papers, it's cause I am like I have, when I was an undergrad, I took a science fiction and fantasy class with, with Dr. White at Arkansas tech university. So the notes that I'm looking at here and prep for this date back to like spring of 2004. So, <laughs> it's a fine year. Good times. so I have like my notes from that class and then the notes that I put together, like with Wikipedia and whatnot, and uh, and and the the main resource that I would say is really helpful if you want to kind of get an idea of like the story of Dune. There's this book that was published called The Road to Dune, and it's a collection of materials. It has a lot of Frank Herbert's writings, but also there's material that's been revised and pieced together by Brian Herbert, his son, as well as Kevin J. Anderson, who is someone that I'm sure we'll talk about further. But this book, I think, came out in like the mid-2000s, and it's a series of like essays and articles and original fiction about the Dune story. Uh, and there's a great collection of letters here that put together a timeline of of Dune the novel, but also the name John W. Campbell gets bandied about quite a bit. So that's why I think we should sort of start with with him and like what what his contributions to science fiction were. <laughs> so who's John W. Campbell? So. He's he's acknowledged as like the, the the godfather or the father of like the golden age of science fiction, which is to say like like the pulps coming to prominence within science fiction in like even like the 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 late thirties and pretty much like throughout the forties and into the fifties and into the sixties, Campbell was a presence. Uh, so. This guy was the editor of uh, of what Astounding Stories, which also which further became like what Astounding Science Fiction. What was the tale? <clears throat> title of it? It's, it was originally Astounding Stories of Super Science, which eventually became Analog, That's which right. is which is the the pulp in which uh, uh, Frank Herbert's uh, initial. Dune manuscripts were published. Should have stuck with the first name. Well, so that gives you an idea of like what was published there, right? right. So if you were to hear a title like that, you would expect like, uh, like what were one of the things like Doctor White said, Bims, uh, big eyed monsters, bimbos, and bums. So you get you get like all of the touchstones of like chauvinist like adventure fiction, smushed 
into your science fiction here. This was this was John Carter of Mars style gotcha. style stuff, right? So it's sword and planet, and it's it's science fiction with a whole lot of heroics, right? Okay. Um, on the Wikipedia page, there is a uh, cover from Astounding Stories, January nineteen thirty. I think this is the first issue, and on here we'll have to include this in the show notes. Okay. There is a guy who looks like he's dressed as a, a pilot and like a fighter plane pilot, and he's punching a, a giant beetle in the thorax. And there's a what looks to be a cave woman. Um, and there's an army of these giant beetles just kind of streaming out of a, a cave. So, so, so just like you described. Yeah, yeah. that's that's it, it's all it's, those high points. It's all of those like the big bug eyed monsters of starship troopers which is a an like an antecedent of this comes from like what you see in these these crazy stories so so campbell so so he was this major editor for astounding uh he was able to attract like the best of the pulp writers because he paid just like a little bit more uh so he was able to to get those submissions and to get you know quality quality material so he like published works of like heinlein asimov van vaught uh let's flip over other people mm, beyond Ray. that sort of trinity yeah yeah so del Rey, uh ee e. doc smith uh clifford d simak who will mention him later on jack williamson who's a who's a pulp a pulp a pulpster of of renown within like the more howard circles mm. of things like these all of these people were publishing in astounding right. i mean so like lovecraft published in astounding right at the mountains of madness at the came mountains out madness, i believe yeah. in there uh, uh henry cutner and uh cl moore published okay in astounding so so this was a this was a this was a big market and this is like the post uh howard lovecraft smith heyday of the 30s like this is this is next wave in terms of the pulps, but really like golden age in terms of like science fiction booming. And so Dune is published in what, like 67? Uh, actually 65 mm-hmm. is when the book is published, but it first is put out in serial form in 63. So we're like a generation off of that. So the bottom line is that Campbell's influence with astounding and subsequently analog like can't be understated like that was uh the first recognizable science fictional world that people are still reading today i mean how many people read like asimov's robot stuff oh yeah it's it's still super popular yeah. uh in in any science fiction class that you take you're going to read one of those uh stories from asimov or heinlein or or bradbury uh you know they're they're the foundational texts yeah so how do we how do we move on how do we advance the clock like i have a whole laundry list of materials from the road of dune or the road to dune like letters that could kind of guide the narration or the the story in terms of like waypoints Mm -hmm. across years or maybe we can talk about people or how do we want to do this well, so when you mentioned John Campbell and his version of sci-fi when it was getting started, how do we get to a refined point with Dune, which is held up as this masterpiece of science fiction? The three words you used before, 
bums, big monsters, and bimbos, like, that doesn't normally inspire masterpieces. So, like, how did we get to that point in history? I think I think that's a good sort of core, like, focus for discussion. Like, Dune really is a story that became published in long form, not against odds, but in contrast with a lot of the other material that was out there. Mm. And so, uh, like some of the things that, that I have written down here is within the, the road to Dune series of letters, there's heavy emphasis on at least initially the correspondence between Herbert and his agent, who is a, na- uh, a fellow named Lurton Blassingame. What a name! Yeah, it's crazy. I want I want to say Blassingale, but it's not Blassingale. It's Blassingame. That's definitely going to learn. So, so Lurton Blassingame was an editor and agent for a lot of like uh, uh, famous genre, genre fiction people, but he was Herbert's editor, and so in that Road to Dune book, there's there's correspondence, like there's the the short form pitch that Herbert made about. Uh, the Dune ecosystem thing, like no. there's there's that there, and then there's also Blasting Games responses, like canning it, like as an editor, and I think it's pretty cool to see him saying like, no, this is this isn't this isn't gonna sell. This, this is isn't gonna good. sell. Yeah, I like, need Spider Man. <laughs> that's a, that's absolutely the way that it's written. I can I can kind of kind of make some some comments there, like like the way that he talks about it. In his letters, give me just a second. Two oh nine. So, so the way that Dune originally came about in Frank Herbert's mind is he was r- proposing a piece about how uh, certain grass species could be used to control uh, expanding, like desert ecosystems. So, like desertification as a force. So, like dunes, the same way that waves might erode a coast. He was looking in the Pacific Northwest at this story where scientists working the Oregon coast found that sands could be controlled by the use of one type of grass, a European beach grass. Like that's, those are his words. And so he's pitching like uh, a science, like layperson article about that. And so here's like Lurton sent two different letters back to him, like that are dated the same time. Uh, but here's the first one, and it's shorter, so I can read it in, it in its entirety. So June 29th, 1957. Dear Frank, control of sand dunes may be a story. It is fairly limited in appeal, but certainly worth trying if you'll make your outline a bit more detailed. You should put uh, put it on a page without any date, just an outline, and give the answers to the questions I've written along the margins. We should also know how the widespread the use of the grass is now and how rapidly it's being multiplied. Uh... So that was like his short form letter. His longer letter says the outline of the story should deal with the battle to save these towns. If you put it in the history, because Herbert pitches like this long form, like civilizations fighting against the desert kind of argument. He's like, uh, it, Lurton says, uh, if you put in any history, it will be just to let us see how hopeless the battle seemed since it had never been won before. And the story probably should be tied around the man in charge so that there can be a human interest in it. Like, it's very much an editor saying, I need a story I can sell. Right. And Herbert said no. I'm, I, like, he just, he didn't, like, say no or nothing. There's just, 
He just let it lie and languish until he started thinking about a science fictional angle for it. And that's kind of cool. Like the, the, this guy had such a had, had such a control on him, and then to jump back, like to to jump back to Campbell, I can read a statement here. So this is another letter, and this is the letter from uh, Lurton back to uh, to Herbert uh, after Herbert sent his initial pitch for dune proper so not the spice spice world like outline that he put together so may 24 63 so we're passing forward like from 57 to 63 here so uh lurton blasting game blessing game yeah not blasting gale i keep wanting to say that but blasting game <laughs> says dear frank i had a call from john campbell this morning he's interested in dune and i'm seeing him on monday to hear what he has to say the original copy went to him last week after I corrected all pages, deleting, adding, and substituting certain pages. In places where one to half a dozen words had been substituted, the old lines were X'd out and new words had either been typed above old lines or printed in pen. Uh, here are seven pages to retype. And then it's like a whole paragraph of him like spelling out like, here's the changes I made to your stuff before I sent it to Campbell. So like, again, Lurton was like an editor that that marketed his book for him. And it's kind of interesting to think about like Herbert sent him a, a precis. What's the term you use? Like the, 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 the sale of a, of a bit of content mm -hmm. and that he just like edited and sent it to like Campbell with astounding. Like it, it's, it's crazy to think that a lot of this book even getting picked up in that initial serialized component really was a consequence of, of, of Lurton's efforts. Or, Lurton. Yeah. And that's pretty different than we're used to with the other authors that published in the pulps that we've talked about, right? Like Howard didn't have an advocate or, or a representative or anything like that. Uh, Lovecraft did to some extent with uh, Julius Schwartz, but uh, I, I think to a sort of lesser degree. Um, it sounds like this Lurton guy who I've never heard of before, like in, in doing research for tonight, uh, was fairly instrumental in getting Dune out there. Once Dune was picked up as a serial by Campbell. So, so the thing to talk about here is a next step. And this kind of ties us about like, why did Dune become the story that it was in the face of the, the big eyed monsters and the bimbos and the, the, the buffoons, so Campbell originally has remarks against uh, Herbert's so-called Superman. Uh, so, so the, the the main character within the original Dune novel is Paul Atreides, and he's fifteen at the beginning, and he's like he's the Quisach Heter Hatterock Hatterock. I don't know. Let's, <laughs> let's look in the uh, the <laughs> index. We should make John. Pronounce these out loud. <laughs> so I did say Quisatz Haderach, H A D E R A C H. I didn't pronounce it as a soft C H. I pronounced it as a hard C H. And so, and so, who who is that dude in terms of like what you've read so far in the story? Uh, that dude by Paul Atreides. Uh huh. Uh, like, what is that as a as a mythic thing? Oh, he's the shortening of the way. He's he's the um. The, he's a messianic figure and it's the, I don't know how far we want to get into this, but 
uh, there is cross pollination between the mythologies of different cultures within this story. And this figure kind of plays a similar role in Bene Gesserit stories and in uh, Fremen stories. And there's, there's a plot reason for that. So he is omni, he's omniscient ultimately and can sort of see all possible paths and he's a he's a he's a super being he's superman he's god and so what campbell remarks uh to 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 herbert he says congratulations you're now the father of a 15 year old superman he then sent on four pages to give suggestions about how to fit the powers of the superhero into the novel culminating into this comment if Dune is to be the first of three and you're planning on using Paul in the future ones, again, Paul is the protagonist, oh man, you've set yourself up for one hell of a problem. You might make well to make the next one somewhat more plottable if you didn't give Paul quite so much of the super duper. So, like, this gets at the the arguments, like, even before... Uh, the story was published. Like Campbell had purchased the story. He says he purchased it in a matter of days for serialization for like 2,500 bucks, 2550, uh, three cents a word. And then started to say like, these are things that aren't going to work. Uh, and Herbert basically had to make arguments for why it was smart to like make a 15 year old God like fit into a story. And so, uh, it says here, the interchange between editor and author proved thought-provoking and more than just the specific story at hand. A few weeks later, Frank Herbert wrote back to Campbell, Your letters on time set off a prolonged conversation the other night between Jack Vance, Paul Anderson, and myself. We missed you. So this is Herbert talking towards John Tor W. Campbell. And he begins to espouse like Vance's statement on time travel, Anderson, and then Herbert. And so Vance... Past and future are entities, are merely illusion. The only re reality is the now instant. Anderson says time is purely, is related purely to the standards of measurement. It's a very hard-headed empirical science argument. And then Herbert, this is him saying his own stance. Time and life are related in a way that does not hold for time and inanimate objects. So it just gets at the soft nature that Herbert was sort of viewing this and he was really wanting to dial in like the, the social ramifications of like throwing a, a man child God like into the mix. And he convinced Campbell. So, so like from the outset, Herbert was arguing, uh, it seems against his editors, but he knew that the story was cool and he knew the story was long form. That's another thing that we can get into here. But, but regardless, Campbell was, the editor that bought the story and Herbert was able to push his brainchild through in, in like in contrast to a lot of the other stories that we're seeing print, like even with this being the sixties and even with this being like a new wave of science fiction and even with this being like social revolution and all that kind of stuff. So here's another question that I kind of have for you then Luke is, We've talked about Campbell and we've talked about Larimer. Larimer. Uh, who's Frank Herbert? Like, what's his deal? So, uh, my understanding, and I I know less about Herbert as a as a dude. He was a he was a journalist. He it was sounds a like he has odd interests. Like, 
sand dunes eating town. I mean, he, he, senior he was, old Superman. He was looking for a story, and the dunes in Oregon was kind of the like the, the people were talking about it. Okay, and it caught his interest. Mm-hmm. There was something about it. Um, but yeah, likewise, I don't know much about him as a, a creator, as, as a person. He was born in uh, 1920, lived until 1986. So uh, in, in that time, I believe that he um, had his greatest success with Dune, but he published a number of other short stories um, in, in science fiction pulps and, and magazines and anthologies. Yeah, I mean, he was a, he was a journalist who... Uh, I know he had a little bit of military service. He became a pulp science fiction published, like like published author. Uh, he got this idea for Dune, and then he like pursued it long over the long term. And he's someone that had he was from the West Coast. He was from the Pacific Northwest. He had an interest in uh, religion and society and. He, like, clearly, like, from reading Dune, you'll see, like, he has an interest in, uh, like, Islam as something that comes up in sort of mystical religions, too. Like, he's, I don't know, it was the 60s. He was into a lot mm. of, like, like <laughs> mystical West Coast kind of stuff. When you said that he was sitting around with his friends talking about the <laughs> impermeability of time or whatever. Yeah, like, he, so he was talking about that with Jack Vance and Paul yeah, Anderson, Paul Anderson, right? yeah. Which are, like, huge fantasy. Like, Jack Vance is dying Earth, like, uh, you know, a contemporary influence, like, 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 post Howard, but a huge, huge influence on mm-hmm. on the, the fantasy, like, sword and sorcery landscape. And Paul Anderson, science fiction Likewise, and fantasy, yeah. yeah. Uh, both of those guys, you've heard us talk about, and you've you've been a guest on uh, the Appendix N uh, literary podcast, right? The Appendix N book club. Me, Jonathan. You, Jonathan. <laughs> Not uh, the listener. Right. Uh, although, maybe. Maybe. Um there may be listeners to the show who have been guests on That's that show. True. And if so, Hey, welcome. <laughs> um, but you know, the appendix in, right. Which is this uh, corpus of, of novels and short stories that influenced, uh, uh, Gary Gygax and sort of informed his decisions in making Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Uh, Zelazny and, and Anderson are both on that appendix in list striking that Herbert is not. It is, yeah. I mean, so it's weird that uh, so Vance is like the Vancean magic system of of Dungeons and Dragons. Like that's the way we think about magic and Dungeons and Dragons. That so called Vancean system. Like that's yep. that's Jack Vance's stuff. And you mentioned Zelazny. Like he had this sort of extra world that people would jump into. And then Paul Anderson. Like he was a he was decampian, at least it seems to me, like with some of his stories where people would sort of jump out of the real world into these fantastic stories. But he also wrote like wrote like The Broken Sword, which is a contemporary to like Lord of the Rings, same year, like same level of of impact in terms of its storytelling. Those are all huge world building exercises. And Herbert's Dune is that too. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's absent. I don't know, man. Like I, I don't know if it's the 
the angles that Herbert was playing with the book that that Gygax just wasn't like into. Mm-hmm. Or, I, I don't know. Like I think that is a a crazy cool conversation, and maybe like a, a, a an RPG scholar is the person to to talk to about that. But it it just doesn't seem it seems incongruous with like some of the so as we're talking about this, it's occurring to me too, according like with the notes. So one of the other names of interest that we could talk about here is a fellow named Sterling Lanier. And so let me look him up real quick. Cause I didn't do all of my oh, key. I know who that is. Yep. Yeah. So, so he, he was, he was the editor of the, uh, the auto repair right. guides, right? So he was the editor for Chilton books right. who actually bought Dune to be published as a book. He is also an appendix inner. He is noteworthy for writing a book named hero. So it's H I E R O apostrophe S journey, which came out in 1973, which, okay post dates dune but that is part of the appendix part of the appendix in uh and it's a post-apocalyptic science fictional world so sterling lanier was a a science fiction fantasy writer himself and that's kind of the connection that's outlined within again like the letters that are in the the road to dune uh as far as why he why he picked up dune as a serialization to publish as a book through Chilton because Chilton, the publisher is most notably known for their like automotive manuals, right? You'll pick up like the, the, the Chilton's attitude Dodge Ram. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you'll get, so, so that is another writer who did this weird world building that Guy Gax was a part of. Why did he pick that? And he didn't pick Dune. I don't know, man. I think, the Are they shorter of, than Dune? They might be. Sh- yeah, I think I that's probably. likely. Uh, yeah. The the Paul Anderson and uh, Zelazny books certainly are. I mean, in terms of like volume by volume. Now, uh, the Chronicles of Amber. That's Zelazny, right? It is, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's a long, sprawling. It's eight or nine, like hundred and fifty, two hundred word tomes. Uh, or, or, or books, I should say. They're not tomes. They're, they're low, quick. They're quick novels. Uh, the Broken Sword, Paul Anderson's like larger form, weird saga, like his 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 uh, uh, Tolkien esque saga, which isn't Tolkien esque. It was the contemporary to Lord of the Rings when it came out. It's a it's a heady book, but it is still only a book. But it's worth it's worth saying, like when Dune came out as a novel, I don't I don't know if it was advertised anywhere that it would become a multi novel narrative. Right. It was published across two separate serializations in two different magazines, and we can get into that too. But the story that evolves in Dune spans like millennia and spans like the life of an of a planet, which I think is Another cool thing about it, but it's that's big picture. I don't know, man. Like it, the, you mentioned that, Josh. I don't know why Gygax wasn't like head over heels for this, though. Yeah, we'll have to ask uh, Jeff and Hoy. We should tweet yeah. at them. We should tweet and say, "Why is Dune not on Appendix N?" It, yeah, it's kind of crazy because there are there's the sword and sorcery that we talked about, right? Like yeah. a lot of the low fantasy elements. And there's a like a lot of those books that are on Appendix N, like the Saberhagen, like a 
uh, uh, Empires of the East, whatever that first book is. Mm. Like, that's the the post-apocalyptic broken land of, like, there's low tech. Like, mm-hmm. magic is tech that's not explained, or vice versa, however you want to spin it. Like, the tech is there, and there's just no interest in expressing, like, what. It, it's mystical because of the way it's spelled out. It's it's cool. Yeah. So I have you said that uh that maybe I misunderstood, but you said that Dune was published in two different magazines. I, I have in my notes that it was in analog, but it was in multiple multiple parts across a couple different years. Yeah, so so uh I'm sorry. Uh so Dune the serial was published in analog and I I I'm maybe I misspoke. Uh Dune Messiah was which is the sequel which was published in 1969 was actually published in galaxy oh so and but this is man we're making like this weird like complicated story here but that's what the story is so uh okay so campbell accepted dune the novel uh at first as a serial so dune was serialized in analog magazine in like 63 to 64 somewhere in there. Right. So in the in the mid 60s, Dune is then bought by Chilton Books. Dune is published as a book. Dune is uh the the winner of the Hugo and the Nebula, Nebula that kind of thing. Uh and then Herbert is working on Dune Messiah, the sequel in the late 60s and Again, in the correspondence that's outlined in The Road to Dune, Campbell is not as interested in this the sequel. Herbert's excited about it, but it's we're not gonna spoil any punches here because the book's so damn like the story's so damn big. Like the god child man who comes to power in the first book is like left out to dry in Dune Messiah, like dies at the end of it. And I've never read Dune Messiah, like I don't know what happens in that book. I own the book. I've just never read it because, frankly, I just it's set aside because I like Dune so much. And I just picked it up because it was cheap one day. And I've never read it because I considered it maybe a secondary, you know, sister sequel kind of thing. But at least in Herbert's writing, he did not think of it as that. It seems like he was jazzed about it. It seems like Campbell was against it. Uh, and so, dot, 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 Dune Messiah, which is the second novel of Dune was again published as a serial first in galaxy, which was one of the contemporary competitors against analog. So that's, that's, that's a bit complicated, but it really does point out that these two long form books, Dune and its sequel were both first serialized across multiple magazines and, and could be right. Like, like at this point, when Galaxy picked up the public, the publication of of Dune Messiah, like how that played out, it like like FNSF, like Fantasy and Science Fiction Magazine, like that was a venue that was out there too. So at that point, there were multiple like magazines for publications. Again, sorry for for no. being quite so rambly, and qu- sorry for being quite so like. Regurgitating well, no, I have of to, this, this, I have this to say, to Dune. like this is as good a story as a story. Like so, <laughs> to see something like this that becomes 
so celebrated the road that it has to take to get to publication. Well, like, that's kind of nuts. You know, I think like you guys, I was not aware of the pulp origins of this novel. And in my imagination, you know, this would have been the same sort of journey that Howard might have undergone with some of his Conan stuff had he lived longer, right? Or or some of his pop, other popular, like Solomon Kane, his other popular uh, IPs, to to use a, a modern term. Right. Uh, he he might have uh, eventually. Well, he did during his lifetime, right? He wrote the Hour of the Dragon, which was a, a novel, which kind of is in essence a series of Conan short stories kind of all put right. together. Um, you can imagine that uh, a similar story to Herbert's might have happened to Howard at some point later in his life with maybe uh, Solomon Kane or something like that. Yeah. But I also have to say like some of these wrinkles are really bizarre, like finding out that a seminal sci-fi masterpiece was published by an automotive book publisher. I mean, it's the same thing to me as finding out like, Oh, Lord of the Rings first came out in popular mechanics and then was collected <laughs> and published by, uh, I don't know, Marvel comics yeah. or some weird, better novel. home, better homes. And but, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there, you know, there's so much cool, like sorted history for all of this publication stuff. Like we've yeah. never really talked about the Ballantine publications of the Lord of the Rings. Right. Like there's this whole, like, nasty legal dispute that happened like there are paperbacks out there published by ballantine before the ballantine adult fantasy series that were unauthorized illegitimate tolkien lord of the rings pirate piracy yeah by a legitimate publisher wow and and that's the precursor the ballantine adult fantasy series was like lynn carter's like anthologized he was the, the the keystone editor that put out that whole series uh, it's 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 awesome, man. There's like so much cool story well, behind the story. World. <laughs> well, it, well, it's it's just a the more you dig into the pulp, the the history of pulps as entertainment in the U.S. specifically, but but you know worldwide more broadly, you begin to see how interconnected these things are, right? right? And the same names keep popping up. Lynn Carter, for example, these appendix N authors who apparently were all just pals, right? <laughs> um, and that is the fascinating thing to me is, is that it seems like there is this Frank Herbert shaped hole that I never knew was there. And in doing this research and reading Dune, I'm gaining a, a greater appreciation for Herbert's place in all this and how he sort of was an interconnected cog within the the greater sci-fi and fantasy publishing world. Yeah, it's cool to think about like these pulp writings, not just science fiction, but just like pulp writing writ large, like becoming literature. And that's a bridge, like one of the things that's outlined within like the materials for my class notes from Dr. White's class back in the day was that like fantasy had acknowledgement and had connections with like lofty literary expression from the get-go science fiction uh tended to not have that experience from the like the it had a, a rougher upbringing uh but though both fantasy and science fiction throughout the american 
mythology of like the 30s through the the 50s or the 60s american fantasy and science fiction was was pretty uh like lowbrow pulpy mm-hmm. and dune is one of those books that aspired to be literary like the the cover to my uh version of of dune on on the back arthur c clark says i know nothing comparable to it except for lord of the rings like and that's that that little like tagline pops up over and over again like this is a science fiction book that was heralded as literature it's not to say that it was the first piece of literature it's just like it was heralded within the pop culture community as literature you know in the 60s and and rein that in and and herbert actively kind of kind of kind of pushed for that it's it's a cool story that can be told just just on on that basis but there's lots of cool people that are that are within the within the world right like that we've that we've name dropped so far and so we've got chilton who has published the first edition of dune right it's a hardback right um i noticed that there was a a, a copy on a books for sale for twenty seven hundred dollars <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, so this this is like one of those holy grail kind of books, I think. Yep. Um, now what? So this book is out. It doesn't hit very hard at first, right? It doesn't. So so uh, it's worth noting that so Dune was first published as a serial in uh, 1964. It was nominated for a Hugo for I think like best novella. I'm not for sure, but it was it was nominated for a Hugo, not as a novel. But as a short form piece, alongside Analog as a magazine, as like best magazine. Uh, and I mentioned this before. So Dune lost to that Simac Waystation story. And it was running alongside Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle and then Andre Norton's Witch World. Like those were the things that uh, Dune, the serialized version, was running against and lost. Analog one. And so again, in the road to Dune, there's correspondence between Campbell and Herbert where Campbell's basically saying, thanks for the, thanks for the, the, the Hugo. That's a, that's a, <laughs> you know, we pretty much owe this to you. <laughs> thanks a bundle. So <laughs> Dune, the novel then went on to win both the Hugo and the Nebula, uh, later on so like in what 65 66 or have, 66 67 66. yeah yeah so they it's it's the first instance of a novel to win both the hugo and the nebula nebula back to back and that's a thing that happens uh multiple times downstream but it's the first one right but it's also i, I think it was the first it. nebula award right and so and so the nebula i've got this bookmark i think the nebula the nebula is the more like literary of the of the two right like the hugo is like a fan award that's given out right whereas the nebula awards was established by the science fiction writers of america in like 66 and so it's kind of seen as the literary more prestigious award but again to tie it like this is a a pulp literary contribution it wins both the popular award in the hugo and then it also wins the more literary brand new nebula and that's the thing that happens 
later on, but this is the first time. Yeah. Yeah, that's notable. It's it's like uh it's like winning the popular vote and the electoral college. Uh, well, it's the people's choice award and <laughs> the Oscar. Yeah, it's Nickelodeon. It, the Nickelodeon, <laughs> yeah, the, the kids choice award. So, exactly. And and so in that like the book wins the book becomes a massive success. Like, again, in The Road to Dune, I keep, like, touting this book. It's not sponsored by – I just I, – I happened to pick it up, like, four days before this recording. So I was, like, reading through it. There's, like, two different instances where there's actual, like, radio spots, like, two-minute, like, radio spots that are provided in the in the, in the the letters. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, uh, in the 60s, this was a science fiction novel which had a two-minute radio ad that was being circulated. And it's cool to see Herbert. Herbert himself was a West Coast dude who knew people. He There's letters, there's comments of him saying, hey, I can push this to X, no, X, X Y, and Z peoples. And there's him actively knowing my book's going to be awesome, but promoting the material too. There's a picture of him in the back of my edition of Dune. And he, he's got a... Uh, uh, an awesome beard. Yeah. It's a sailor beard. Yeah. Kind of Santa-y. <laughs> There's a good one. I have the, yeah, that's pretty good. I have the same. <laughs> so, so Dune becomes... I, I think it's analogous... I am not a Tolkien scholar, but I think this is analogous to, like, the height of Tolkien, like, Frodo lives fandom, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't appreciate the, like, being... On Hate Ashbury in like '68, like a year past the Summer of Love, and like seeing a sticker slapped on the side of a of a stop sign that says like Frodo lives. Yeah, but th- that's like a, a countercultural statement of this is who I am. Like Lord of the Rings is hardwired into my hippie lifestyle. It's the and, same thing with like Dune, and only other fans are going to get it. Yeah, right. Like you're 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 leaving a message for your tribe. Um, what would the Dune sticker be? Like Muad'Dib or something? Like Oh, oh. Fear is the Mind Killer. Fear is the Mind Killer? <laughs> That's what I would think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it, man. Uh, it's it's just it's such a cool weird ass story. So I'm excited to talk about it. Walk it's, without rhythm? Yeah, we can we can talk about sandworms, we can talk about the mini Jesuit and we can talk about all the women in the novel. We can yeah. talk about uh jc figures we can get into like <laughs> planet ecology we can We're get going into to. betrayal like there's there's just so much stuff uh, uh yeah before we get into any of that i want to ask a couple of questions for you guys the first one is i i noticed earlier that i was kind of shortchanging pulp for fantasy and science fiction and really pulps uh sort of straddle genres Right. So let's talk about some terminology that we've thrown out here tonight. And really the main one that I have is soft science fiction versus hard science fiction. And we've talked about Dune being a good representative of uh, soft science fiction, maybe even the, 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 the type specimen, maybe. So what is soft science fiction? What is hard science fiction? And why why is uh, why is Dune soft science fiction? I will leave this wholly up to no no. So what <laughs> what's your inclination? I I have absolutely zero inclination. Like in in my head, 
hard science fiction is Star Trek and soft science fiction is Star Wars. But okay. I don't know that Star Trek is necessarily hard science fiction. I, I don't know. I don't know if hard science fiction has to have uh, precise scientific explanations for everything. And okay. if that's the case, then Star Trek is is not hard science fiction. Maybe uh, like Ted Chang's science fiction is is hard science fiction. Like The Arrival is okay. hard sci-fi. You're frantically flipping pages looking for an explanation. Well, I was I was searching around for a definition within my, my class notes. I mean, I would argue that Ted Chang's stuff is 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 the opposite, that okay. it is soft sci-fi. Soft. Like 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 Chang does not hand wave science, but he he moves past a lot of the mechanics to get towards like the relevance of the of the item at hand. Okay. And so, I mean, I would argue that any, uh, I'm, I'm going off the cuff here, but, but any episode of black mirror is soft science or is, is soft SF. Okay. Like, like black mirror works as a popular piece of media on the basis of it's accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to get the mechanics of how any, bit or piece of tech works Mm -hmm. you just need to get it how it impacts you like either in your feels or in your consequences of your life and life and death sort of situation and that's that's soft science fiction to me like like uh absolutely i would put herbert as a soft science fiction author because you don't know how the uh, orthocopters work, and you don't know how uh, the shields that everybody wears on their body work. Right. But you know the relevance of that relating to how they move from point A to point B across the world and how they sort of fight with swords. Like, <laughs> like, okay. the, like, like the, the, the romanticism that's explained and we're jumping ahead to book one or like maybe our next, our next recording. But, but there's a point where there's a, dis, like a comment about the romanticism of, 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 of poking and stabbing somebody versus slashing somebody right. with mm-hmm. their shields on. And that gets at the, the social importance of the science fictional element as opposed to like the likelihood or the, the, the interest in terms of the tech behind that. Does that make sense? It does. I, I was thinking of the sciences like physics, for example, right? There, there are hard theorems in physics, but there are things that happen that physics can't explain yet. Right. That we don't understand. And we hand wave. Right. Because we don't know. Right. And so in my mind, the hand waviness of uh, a given work doesn't necessarily disqualify it from being a hard sci-fi. Right. You know, Um, because in in fields, even in biology, you know, there there are things that we don't quite understand yet. um, But we hand wave. We put forth some hypotheses and we hand wave. So, um, I guess 
that I, I still am a little bit lost on. I, I, I know what soft sci-fi is when I see it. <laughs> I don't know what hard sci-fi is and I can't explain it. I guess that that's what I'm trying to decipher. Cause I just, I'm, I'm on Wikipedia now looking at the hard sci-fi article. And so these are some novels that are rep- are listed as representative of hard science fiction. 1984. Okay. Uh, the Andromeda Strain. That's interesting. Okay. The Jurassic Park. Okay. Books. Okay. 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 Uh, the Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. So that dude. So I've read Aurora, which okay, is my that's only. Also listed. So yep. so the whole premise of of Aurora as a book, and it, it I read it a couple of years ago when it was on a bunch of lists, and I was getting into science fiction. And starting to read some hard science fiction materials, the whole statement of that book, oh no, that's an, that's that's a, that is, that's too broad. One of the central premises of that book is that the generational starship that's taking people out to the new place to colonize mm. is a sentient life form, and so there is an AI that is like the spaceship. That is a very like soft concept uh, to have like a thinking, living, breathing spaceship that's alive across like multiple generations of engineers and scientists and leaders on that on that spaceship while it's going to and fro. Mm-hmm. But the like the the importance of that story is to say, like Robinson argues this across essays and across the the Morris trilogy and Aurora and lots of places like we don't need to be worrying about looking towards the stars for how we're going to escape the the foobar situation that we've put ourselves in here on earth mm-hmm. we need to come to terms and fix it before it's too late like it's a very real world pragmatic like solutions based idea like idea and ideology okay. like that story plays out Aurora with the ship going to and fro. And by the time it comes back on the fro, you see like restoration ecology playing out like the last 30 pages of the book. And it's getting at how, how we deal with like dramatic consequences of like, of, of, of climate change and a a shifting world on that, on that basis of, consequences that have to be dealt with not like what does it mean when the 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 starship is a a thinking entity like that's part of it but the bigger sort of equation that has to be answered is how do we solve problems like here and now go ahead john well so i'm interested to hear that because i then i i look into films which is something that i can also pretty usually readily identify themes and say like, Oh, I get what hard science fiction is. But when I look at this list of films, it confuses me even more. Perhaps I would say, uh, so it's got 2001, a space odyssey. I can see that blade runner contact Gattaca. Yeah. Moon Hmm. robot and Frank, which I don't know if you guys have seen. I haven't seen that. And ex machina, like I'm just I'm okay. choosing so, and picking. So those seem those are all hard, right? That's what it's saying. It makes sense, like ex machina and moon, and like and and 2001. Those all seem very hard because they're so. Like, help I, me understand that then, because when I look at ex machina, I can see what you're saying a little bit. But 2001, a space odyssey has. 
I think a cosmic baby at the true. end of it. Like but I think, I think maybe uh, I don't know. Maybe two thousand one pokes a hole in this, but in hard science fiction, the mechanisms are part of the plot, and in okay. soft science fiction, the mechanisms uh, are unimportant. They're secondary to the plot. Okay, so you just kind of say yeah, and that's so the, the way it is. So in uh, Ex Machina, like we we don't have to understand computer science and you know game theory and uh ai research to understand that this is an ai right, right? but the mechanism is the test the mechanism of the the learning machine is central to the plot right i i would agree as opposed to like the moral quandary that that might be presented like like there are soft elements of ex machina but it's it's like that follows as a consequence of that that core yeah. consideration. And the philosophical questions are, a, you know, they are a secondary sort of consequence to that initial development of the AI. So if you were to hold up, like, I want to stay in robot fiction movies. Okay. So if Ex Machina is hard science fiction, Robocop is, is soft science fiction. Soft science fiction. Or, or Terminator. iRobot? Uh, no, I, I would argue that there that that's pretty pretty hard. So I would argue the movie She is that that's what it's called. Her right? with or her. There we go. Yeah, yeah. She is different yeah. than her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there we go. Her. Her is a is a soft, like super soft science fiction movie. It just says there's AIs that people have in their pocket and Go. like, okay. yeah, and that, that, that's a great, like that would be the soft comparison to Ex Machina. Okay. All right. I can feel you then. I don't know. I don't know if that is a good definition or not. I don't know. Well, I can kind of get the feel for it then at that point. Yeah. Because if like you're just saying, okay, we're going to watch a movie and Joaquin Phoenix is a lonely dude and Scarlett Johansson is a robot in his pocket. Go. Yeah. That I can understand that. Well, being so the sentient, sentient robots have taken over the world in the future and the humans have sent somebody back in time. None of the mechanisms are explained really. So now you're talking about Terminator? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. So let's talk about this though. Like maybe to set our grounding. So. A scratch that is not an itch, but a scratch that's an irritant to me that's just something that I, I don't like to deal with is things that are mislabeled as science fiction. Okay. So, okay. so uh, again, looking at my notes, Dr. White, thank you. Like, the, the, the comment that, she, that I wrote here is this, the fiction of extrapolation and fearing unknown information from what is already known. Like, that's what science fiction is. But I hate that... So many things are classified as science fiction when they're not. And so I remember when I took this class, there was a hard distinction on her end. And this was when like the, the, the SIFI channel, like the sci-fi channel mm -hmm. was, was starting, I think like, you know, it switched at that from sci-fi to SYF. Yeah. Yeah. And so she made multiple remarks. I don't know if it's anywhere in my notes, but like, People that are fans of science fiction, like they're fans of SF. Like that's the way that the genre has referred to itself across across many years and like like within the fanish community, like in that pure like like fan sense, that's how you would refer to yourself. 
science fiction is not like ray guns and 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 big eyed monsters. Science fiction is like big moral questions, regardless of whether it's hard or soft. For science fiction to be like meaningful and relevant, it has to have some like extrapolation and some sort of importance, like a touchstone to to society. Yeah, or, it needs or to be like it needs to be challenging and asking questions, and you know, like uh, you don't like a YA novel is not necessarily science fiction just because and a book with ray guns is not science fiction just because like for something to be science fiction it has to be challenging with a question or like taking steps to extrapolate which is okay. different than fantasy and horror which are other genres of 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 related ilk that we can get into yeah which so, can which can ask similar questions right, right. So you get really agitated when you walk into the sci-fi section of Half Price Books. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's the it's the genre like the 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 section. It's not like science fiction is only a quarter of what you see within that 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 Netflix Netflix queue or the 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 stack of books at Half Price. So what's what's an example recently of something that you saw that you felt was mislabeled? Do you have anything off the cuff? It's okay if you don't. I was just wondering. I mean, trying to. I'm trying to think about how to how to answer it. I I think is it is it more of a general feeling and less a specific sort of like case by case thing? Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to just like dig and that's what, that's and okay. dive into it. But like 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 Star Wars is not necessarily science fiction. Okay. And that's something that you and I off mic were, were, talking, we're talking about. Yeah, we were riffing on it. But I don't want to just default. Because I think the newer Star Wars movies have some science fictional elements in them. Uh, but I, I don't know. I think I feel like, and I don't want to make this into uh, literature versus not, but like <laughs> any number of YA materials that are marketing themselves as science fiction to some degree aren't. Like... Uh, I don't know if they market Hunger Games as sci-fi, but do they? Uh, I, I think they do. I think it has light, like like it, it is a soft sci-fi. Yeah. If you lump dystopia in right. with sci-fi, okay. So that right. would that be a subgenre? A sub subgenre? Yeah, of, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um. So when you said Star Wars, it got me thinking earlier when you were talking about this concept of Qu- Quisach Haderach. Uh, I initially thought of Anakin Skywalker from the prequel trilogy, <laughs> right? Like Anakin as presented in the Phantom Menace is Paul Atreides. You were the chosen. You were the chosen one. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're supposed yeah. to bring balance to the force. They have a prophecy. Yeah. Yep. So then you, I guess, I guess I'm challenging this notion that Star Wars is not science fiction. Well, I, I think it depends on what we're what we're defining as Star Wars, right? Like that that like, so like Star Wars, like, the nineteen seventy seven movie is, itself is probably a fantasy in space. Yeah, right. But the Phantom Menace might be closer in spirit to Dune. Yeah, no, I I. I I agree for sure. And of course, all of like, so, so, uh, science fiction and fantasy are, are two sides 
of a coin, right? Like they're both seeking to explain the unexplainable. Yeah. And so one of them does th- does so through extrapolation and one of them does does so through like a mystical approach. And so you get this dichotomy between like romanticism and realism that plays out and I think it would be cool to talk about romanticism and realism within science fiction as opposed to romanticism and realism within fantasy because there's gray areas there yeah. right like as you get romantic science fiction and realistic fantasy you can get like an overlap of mm. your of your Venn diagrams and I think that's I think that's like rife for for discussions and I, I think <laughs> you can you can the different sections of dune approach those uh, classifications in different ways. I, I, it starts. It starts fairly hard. If you're reading Dune, it is uh, a coming of age tale in a hard, a hard science fictional world, and it becomes more mystical as Paul goes down his road. Yeah. Like there's magic from the get go, but it becomes more magical as Paul embraces his like jihadist world <laughs> like like he, that's that's what happens yeah besides all that i thought we classified this book earlier as sword and sorcery right <laughs> <laughs> genres are tossed out the yeah window. well that's a whole nother that's a whole nother episode this is this is gonna be fun so we haven't off mic discussed about like strictly how we're going to space out or structure our episodes uh, there are three books to the novel Dune, which is what we're following here. There's what Dune, Muad'Dib, and the the Prophet. I think those are the three like books or something. It was originally pitched as four separate books, and then it got condensed into three upon serialization and publication. So that's what we're going to talk about. So at the least, you're looking at three additional episodes on dune plus a conclusion episode which would be five total yeah but there's probably going to be more like we talked about maybe doing books one through three as episodes and then having ancillary topical episodes yeah but we haven't figured it out we might and we might cover those three portions of the novel and decide you know this is a theme that we want to dive into so so who knows so Um, so, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I'm I'm I, I think just as psyched to to dig into this for different reasons. So, um, so let's do this. Let's let's read book one. Muad we'll, or Dune. Dune. Book one Dune. We'll do book one Dune as an as an episode. Okay. And if there's an emergent topic, we'll come to that as a sister episode. Okay. And then we can do the same so that like my, my goal here and i didn't say this at the beginning too like i like the idea of keeping episode structures pretty tight within a season you know with a three with a with this big book there's only three books within it this should be something that we can get through within the next like 10 episodes of a season for sure we're not gonna go crazy here so we might yeah so 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 we'll (laughs) pretty crazy next (laughs) next episode we will talk about book one in its in its entirety or in its near entirety, mm-hmm. that'll be a commitment for all of us to read book one, the first third of the book, and we'll do that. We'll talk about it, and then we'll come back around 
and then we'll see if there's any topics that need to be revisited in a couple sister episodes, and then we'll do book two, so on and so forth. Sounds like a plan, my friend. Yeah. Sounds great. I'm 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 psyched. <laughs> it's, I'm it's almost I'm, I'm <laughs> You're you're the you're the, the preparer of the way. I'm the you're planetary the, ecologist. I'm kind. No, man. <laughs> you're you're the Quitox Hotterock. You're you're preparing the way. You're shortening the way for us. I'm, I'm just one of the worm things. The worms? There are worms in this. There, right? there, there are, are worms. There it has worms. worms. This book has worms. Yeah, Got it. Big worms. Big worms. Ba- biggest worms you've ever seen. Well, so I said something the last time we met about tremors and you gave me a dirty look and i was like wait are there not giant worms in this but now i know there are and you gave me a dirty look because i referenced the kevin bacon movie i'm sorry in the silence no it's fine the silence is <laughs> it's fine definitely you, you can give me this is america <laughs> you can give me a dirty look whenever you want no <laughs> I, I like doing a lot dude yeah <laughs> so I, I guess we're winding down here for our introductory episode to uh to Dune and to Frank Herbert and our uh, explanation of sorts uh, in terms of why we've chosen to go this direction. Hopefully we've explained ourselves like this, this, this sort of exploration of the pulps and how they extend outward into pop culture yep. is just fascinating to me. And it's endless. You can, you can look at comic books and the subsequent glut of comic book movies and find the pulp origins of those. You, any, any genre that you're a fan of, chances are there was a pulp that published stories within that genre and those stories influenced and informed the modern interpretations of that genre. So I'm, I'm psyched to get into Frank Herbert's Soft science fiction slash sword and sorcery masterpiece. <laughs> Dune. Anything else before we sign off for this one? Count us out, dude. Get to reading, folks. You got you got a couple hundred pages to get through. Yeah, and it is not uh, easy. I will I will say, like the first few chapters, as you're getting accustomed to terminology, that's it's uh, it's something. It's a little. You're going to need two bookmarks, one for your story and then one for your appendix or your glossary, whatever it is. Yeah. But uh, by God, like how many awesome characters are there in the in the story? I mean, so between many. like Thufer and, and Duncan and Gurney, I mean, just like those three, like those, those like Paul's like buddy inspirations not his dad like we'll talk yeah. about we'll talk about paul and his daddy issues i think that's a great <laughs> it's a great topic that, that is gonna uh, be that's gonna <laughs> resonate uh but but paul and his pseudo daddies uh <laughs> those like it's so good man there's 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 so much there so th- so just have fun with with all of the the various characters yeah they're good stuff it's no more challenging than that first book uh, in the Song of Ice and Fire, <laughs> it's it is comparable. Yeah, yeah, for absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Come so, back to that. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll come back to that. So that's it for us uh, from Lexington, Kentucky. You've been listening to the Chromecast. You can find us on the web at thechromecast.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter at the Chromecast. You should tweet without rhythm to us. You should find us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash the Chromecast. And you can call us. That's 859-429-CROM. And you can slip into our DMs on Instagram. That's at the Chromecast on the Instagrams. And until next time, you can find us. What's, what's the name for this road? I don't know. It's the road to Arrakis. You I can think. find us a little bit further down the road to Arrakis. <laughs>